All right, let's give that a shot. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 10. Paul writes, well, Paul, Silas, and Timothy all write, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, we just got back from high school camp Friday night, um, and Steve's back there pretending he can't hear me. Um, Steve was there with me, um, and here's just in case you haven't been, uh, here's what happens at a high school camp. Um, high schoolers want to get away from their parents, um, and so they convince them to pay or, or fundraise uh, to have them, to let them go for a week. And at first, it's kind of a lot of fun and games. We play this game called Nine Square, which is basically four square, but it's in the air, it's with volleyball. Um, it's fun against high schoolers because they can actually kind of hit back with middle schoolers. It's kind of a bloodbath um, once, the, <laughs> once the counselors get involved. So on, uh, let's see, Dee, what night was that? Tuesday night that went really long? Uh, the worship service, Wednesday night. We had a night game planned and everything. Um, nobody found me during counselor hunt. Uh, that's two years running at this point. Um, you found me last year because I jumped off the roof and ran so that you could have a good time. So uh, whatever you said is not on the recording, so it didn't happen. Uh, so always kind of a night game after chapel. Uh, usually goes to about 11 o'clock. And the, or it goes to about 10 o'clock, and then, and then we wrap up lights out at 11, uh, which is way, way, way too late, but it's what we can do. This year, on Wednesday night, um, it was like we finished the worship service uh, about an hour and a half, and then um, it just kept going. <laughs> and people kept worshiping, and the band kept playing. We were there till 10.30. Um, and it was just sort of this open time of worship, and there are about 40 kids and leaders left in the chapel just worshiping God. Um, it was a pretty pretty cool moment. Uh, they canceled the night game, and, uh, and just sort of let the Spirit do and be among us the way that uh, the way that the Spirit sort of needed to. There was also um, this thing, and this is kind of the thing I've been reflecting on about camp, is, is, is camp kind of puts kids into a situation where you're kind of in a different space, mentally, spiritually, um, obviously physically. Uh, on the first night, Speaker Tim, who was uh, here last week, if you met him, he, he produced a basket of rocks. Uh, and he told the kids, uh, if you want to come get a rock, uh, he told a story about a, a teen that he had been a youth pastor for who uh, had picked up a rock, and everybody else at the camp kind of picked up rocks as this symbol and sort of dropped them at the foot of the cross. But Devlin grabbed the rock, and he, he took two rocks, first of all, uh, and he stuck them in his pocket. And 
Tim goes out to him and asks him what the rocks are for. And Devlin says, well, this one is for, I think it was his relationship with the parents. And this is for my expectations of God, of what my relationship ought to be. It's like, okay, 14-year-old kid. <laughs> and, and he wasn't going to let the rocks go until he was really and truly ready to let them go. And so he kept them with him for like three days until the last night. He was able and ready to release them at the foot of the cross. So Tim brought rocks. And he said, you know, some of these rocks are not bad things, right? Peter and his uh, co-fishermen, they drop their nets when Jesus calls them. Nets are great. Fishing is great. Having a job is a good thing. And yet, even that good thing was in the way of them following Christ. Right? Even that good thing was in the way of the best thing that Jesus had for them. And so Tim invited kids up to pick up their rocks, put them in their pocket, to hold them, drop them off when they were ready. And here we've got 80 teenagers carrying rocks around, talking, thinking, praying, wrestling with things that's keeping them from being all in with Christ. And after a week of that, after a week of kids wrestling with Here's the bad thing that I've been engaged in. Here's the attitude that I've been carrying with me. Here's the thing I need to let go. Or here's the good thing that I am involved in that's keeping me from being fully in. After a week of that, we come to the last night and kind of gather around the campfire and kids start coming up to share what their rocks were. And you would be, I don't know, I want to say you'd be appalled um, at the stories that come forward and the things that a lot of these kids have experienced. In front of a group of strangers, a lot of these teenagers stand up and share the worst stuff in their lives, the kind of thing that, that they actually spend the rest of their lives trying to make sure that nobody knows about. And yet they're willing and able in this place to open up to a room to 80 of their closest friends. What I feel like we find is that when your whole life is avoidance, when your whole life is kind of dealing with difficult feelings, when your whole life is built around not revealing something that really wants to be revealed, Right? That relationship that's not going well, that thing that happened to you in the past, that addiction that you just can't kick, the refusal to actually invite Christ into this particular room or area of your life. When your whole life is avoidance, you give young people the opportunity to get real in a different environment, and oftentimes they will do just that. They will push through the discomfort. They'll sit in a church service for four hours. And then another one a couple nights later for two plus hours while people share. And I don't know if you heard it in what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. But listen again to verse 6. And you became imitators of us 
and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, Paul goes to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, and he didn't plan to be in this part of the world. Macedonia, Achaia, this is the area up north, Macedonia particularly, it's the area up north of Greece, kind of the mountainous region, north, north of where Corinth and, and, and all of these other cities that Paul visits would be. But when he gets to Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue, as he normally does, and he speaks to the Jews, primarily because they understand the scriptures. He has some traction to start with from them, for them. The Jews get real upset after a couple weeks of Paul doing this, so he kind of moves next door to this guy named Jason's house. And now he's made the Jews in the synagogue upset, and he's also kind of making the Greeks and the Gentiles uh, in the rest of the city upset because he's speaking now to them out of their culture and place and reminding them that the Lord of all is Jesus Christ, a crucified criminal born in a manger, as we read in Revelation 12 today, with a rod of iron in his hand to rule and reign over all. There's a mob that happens in Thessalonica. They come after him. And the church has to kind of hustle Paul out. And so he's only been in Thessalonica six, eight weeks, something like a couple months. That's all the time that he has had to plan this church. I just had a six-week sabbatical. It's not that long. And yet the church has received everything that they know about Jesus from Paul. They've received everything that they know to carry forth this faith into a world that is set against them from Paul in that short period. And so he writes this letter. He writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians back to the church, not only to remind them what he has already taught them, but to further them in that instruction, to deepen them in the faith. And where does he start? What does he commend them for? Right here, just a few verses in, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. All of us, I'm sure, when we've heard the word preached, when we've heard the gospel, when somebody first presents the truth of Jesus Christ to us, I'm sure some part of that was, if you accept this, if you receive this, if you live this way, then there will be joy that comes with it. Fewer of us heard the message, if you accept this, if you receive it, if you live this way, you are guaranteed to deal with affliction. Even fewer of us, I'm sure, heard the message that if you receive this gospel and live this way, that the joy and the affliction will be bound up together. It's because they received the word in the midst of affliction that they also received the joy of the Holy Spirit. Those things are not disconnected. Paul holds them closely together. They first encountered the cross and suffering in Paul, who is being threatened with in their city, they first encounter the 
cross in Paul who is staring death in the face. And that's the moment and the time they receive it. I was talking to a youth pastor on our way down. He's the youth pastor over at First Church who gave us a ride back from camp. He was telling me when he went to First Church, really small youth group, kind of like ours, still really small, kind of like ours. And he was talking, he had been at a, at a big kind of non-denominational mega church. And he was talking to some friends uh, about what he would want to do with this youth group. And the wisdom that they gave him is, the temptation when you're in youth ministry or really any ministry is, how can I throw a big thing? Let me, how do I get attention? Right? So maybe I'm putting up lights and we're putting up a stage and we've got a rock and roll band and we're doing that whole thing. And in the midst, we're going to kind of preach the gospel. Or maybe we've got an old classic car show or we bring out the skate ramps or, I mean, whatever it is that we kind of use to get people locked in, to grab people's attention, here was the wisdom. Whatever you use to bring them, you have to use that to keep them. Right? So as you try to grow a church or grow a ministry, if the thing that you're trying to do is, if you're growing this ministry with by attracting them with their interest, the way you keep them locked in is by continuing to provide them with their interest. Especially if it's not ministry. But if the way that you grow a ministry is through relationship and care and love, right, through being involved and invested, then the way that you continue that ministry is through relationship, care, love, being involved and investment. But I was thinking of that because how does Paul speak to the Thessalonians? How did you come to the faith? How did you come into Christ? Paul does a brilliant thing. He doesn't lie to them. Believe, like, imagine that. He doesn't lie to them about the faith. That the God that we serve became flesh so that he could be crucified. And yes, resurrection is the fulfillment of that. And yes, we are coming into the joyful presence of God. Yes, we're coming into full communion with God. Yes, there is all of this good stuff. But how often do we try to avoid the very thing at the center, which is the cross? Paul wisely does not move around the fact of affliction when it comes to the gospel. He doesn't try to skirt that or avoid it. In fact, he leans into it. He says, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That is a church With joy, what can take that from us? More affliction? That just brings more joy. More trouble? More thanksgiving. You see the kind of church that Paul has founded here that he has raised up even in just a few short weeks. And contrary to our expectation, tribulation and joy go so well together. And this, I hope, is the thing that we are speaking in our own life, this upside-down gospel. I wonder if you've ever had somebody come to you and say, I love Jesus, I know all that about him, I believe he died on the cross for my sins, I believe he was raised again to prove that he was really, really God, and I believe he's coming again. Right? They knock out all the key points. Boom, 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 boom. I believe all that, I accept it. 
sometimes you look him in the eye. Sure, you believe in the cross. But you embrace the cross as a way of life, not just a historical fact. But as a way of being in the world. When people ask, why is my faith so dry? Why don't I have any joy? I wonder if we answer, well, maybe because you're avoiding affliction. Maybe because you're trying to skirt around difficulty. We actually find a lot in a lot of churches and a lot of places, and honestly, it's not just the Christian world. This kind of becomes the gospel of the world, a vision that seeks to cut out suffering, that seeks to cut out difficulty, that seeks to avoid affliction, that sees only prosperity and wellness as signs of God's favor. Yet how often in our world do we see families, individuals, groups of people, whole swaths of our communities that have every possible thing they can need and suffer with lack It takes a lot of forms. It takes a lot of pills to fix it. It takes a lot of tips and tricks in the world. But a lack of joy is rampant. How often we think that we're preparing ourselves for the richness of God's blessing and what we're really doing is just avoiding any difficulty. Avoiding any trouble. I couldn't help but think of Matthew 9 and the man that Jesus heals. His friends bring him to Jesus. And Matthew, I don't, Matthew doesn't mention the roof and everything, does he? No, his friends, his friends bring this man to Jesus. He comes to Jesus lame, and if you read the story closely, Jesus seems to want to send him away lame. He comes to him, he comes to him not able to walk, which of course we know means not able to work, not really to fully engage in worship. There's all kinds of things that go along with not being able to walk. And I wonder if Jesus actually sees the real desire of the man's heart. If Jesus sees what the man is really about, it's his friends who bring him there. And maybe the man knows. I mean, my lameness is not good, but it's kind of who I am. What I really need is my sins forgiven. Maybe it's the man's heart that has been purified, and Jesus sees that and wants to honor that because he looks at him, and he doesn't say, get up and walk. He looks at the lame man, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's a lot harder to actually forgive somebody's sins than it is to raise up a lame person. Well, let me say that again. It's a lot harder to say your sins are, or a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say you can walk. But it's actually a lot harder to forgive sins. Only one person can do. Right? So here's the tension that Jesus is in. Is he trying to get one over on him? Is he trying to just say your sins are forgiven and then nobody can tell and the guy goes away? But in order to dispel any doubt from their minds, the observers, he says to him, get up. Your mat and walk. The lesser work, the healing, proves the greater work is the 
think about that because how many of us want an end to our affliction when Christ is offering us joy? We want to be healed. We want to stand up. We want to walk. We want to see. We want to hear. We want the car to not make that noise. Right? We have all kinds of things that we just kind of want to have happen, and the Lord is saying, yes, that's fine, but what I really want you to see and to know and to have here is joy with affliction. And it's the Holy Spirit who can do it. The result of the Thessalonians embracing Christ, embracing their affliction, embracing the joy of the Holy Spirit becomes this witness that shines forth, Paul says. It's great when Paul is like proud of his churches. <laughs> There's these moments where he's just like, you got, he, it's, it shows up in Philippians, it shows up here in Thessalonians. He's just like, you guys are great. Like, you are killing it, and you make my job so easy. <laughs> Because what does he tell them? Your witness, verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. In other words, you're my sermon. Right? When Paul walks into a city in that area, he just says, look, you guys, look at the Thessalonians. Look at the church in Thessalonica. They suffered, and they're joyful. They're hurting, but I can prove to you that Christ is real because they're not like the Corinthians, these rich snobs who are excluding the poor from their meals, right? They're hurting, and yet they still I only had six weeks with them, but they still embrace the whole gospel. Be like them. Paul gets so proud. The whole world sees who you are. The whole world sees what you're doing. Keep it up. And I think the tension here is that for so many of us, we think evangelism, we think witness is salesmanship. Right? It's convincing some people that they want something that maybe they want, but they don't. But Paul sees it totally differently. Paul says, look, witness, evangelism is power. That if you can show that you have embraced something in spite of obstacles, you can demonstrate that you have joy in the midst of suffering. And if you can live out a life that can only be lived if Christ was really raised from the dead, that's when your witness becomes real. As a kind of Cody's last day little bit here. No matter what happens, coming or going, that's the thing Cody will leave with me. Then at one point, and I, I'm sure he said it from behind this pulpit, but I know he said it probably a lot more to me in private, is I want to live the kind of life that only makes sense if Jesus crucified, raised from the dead. That people can look at it and it will only make sense if Jesus really died and was really raised. There is a unique kind of power in that. And I had seen him lean into that reality over 
over and over again. And here's the thing. When you live that kind of life, there's all sorts of off-ramps. There's all sorts of times where you can go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that and I'm going to live that in terms of my job, but I'm going to kind of take the off-ramp when it comes to my relationships. Or I, I'm going to believe and live like Jesus is really, really real when I pray, but when I'm on social media, I'm just kind of, kind of irk over Right? And I've seen over and over again just the way Paul pushes forward the Thessalonians. I'm going to push forward Cody a little bit. And I know it's embarrassing, but you don't have to come back next week. <laughs> if I drive you off, that's fine. Uh, over and over again, I've seen Cody choose, even when it's hard, and even when it means affliction. Argument that totally proves what I'm saying is right. Right? That kind of YouTube evangelist. Christian, joy, atheist. Rather than that kind of life. Living a life that quietly, fearlessly takes the gospel and just embraces it to the very core of the world. That's the kind of witness Paul is talking about. And I hope the kind of witness people see in us. Not a life that makes big intellectual arguments, but a life that is transformed into the holiness of Christ. You know, the most interesting part of this passage, and I, I've got a, another translation here that comes more, it's, I think it's like the King, New King James. Um, a lot of your translations will say what the ESV that I read this morning, they will say what that says. It's in verse 8. Um, it says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Now, I, I checked with, it's like one of those days that your Greek teacher shows up. Uh, I checked with Michael, <laughs> who was my Greek teacher in seminary. Uh, <laughs> I checked with him before, and we're going to muddle our way through this maybe. But um, the Greek doesn't actually say your faith in God. It's a little confusing, but what it actually says is your faith toward God, or your faithfulness in the face of God. And, and it's this interesting thing, because rather than it being about, I, I have faith in the things that I see and believe, I have faith in the arguments that Jesus really did this stuff, I, I have faith or I believe that he really died on the cross and that really forgives my sins. It's not like my mind was changed. What Paul is saying is, you were faithful in faith along with God in your suffering. That God was faithful to you, and you were faithful in response to God. God was faithful to call you, and you were faithful to live boldly and joyfully in the midst of that affliction. Your faith toward God is the thing that ought to be seen, is the thing that shines forth. Because it would have been so easy 
as Paul slips into talking how they came out of idolatry, it would have been so easy for them to hear from Paul, to love Paul, to be an imitator of Paul. And then as soon as Paul heads on to his next step in his teaching to Athens, to Corinth, hey, look, guys, this is tough. And you just sort of slide back toward these idols. You just sort of slide back toward trusting someone or something else. Rather than a for a faithfulness that is fixed on the idols and the idolatry of their day. And we have to remember, when they talk about worshiping idols, we think we don't do that. We do it all the time. Anything that makes you feel secure and is not Jesus Christ is an idol. It doesn't mean we can't put money in the bank. Although... But any time that overwhelm or takes the place of the assurance of our future, which is in Christ and Christ alone, we've created an idol. So what is Paul saying? Rather than a faith or a faithfulness that is fixed on the idols and the idolatry of their day, rather than finding meaning in something outside of Christ, they remain faithful Rather than believing all the stuff about Jesus, maybe we struggle to actually do like the Thessalonians, to keep our faithfulness towards Jesus. I think the difference here, and I'm struggling with it, but I think the difference here is the difference between knowing about the cross and the empty tomb and understanding that the affliction that comes with the cross and the promise and the assurance that comes with the empty tomb, that's the way that I live. So that I can courageously and openly walk into difficulty. So that we can, with assurance, walk into those places knowing that affliction will come. And knowing that unless we live a life that God has to raise from the dead, that we have not yet fully abandoned ourselves to Christ. We have not yet dropped our rock. We're hanging on to something. Cody's the prime example, I guess, for me this morning. But I think, too, of the funeral we had here just not this past week, but three weeks. And how it would be so easy to think that her life was just hunky dory. Right? How encouraging she was to people, how, how full she was of the joy of Christ, how thankful she was for her relationship with her husband, of how blessed she was by her kids, of how much she loved and cared for this community how much she poured out into the art class, you just think like, oh, she just must have been like overflowing with peace and hope and joy and butterflies in her tummy all the time. And the truth was, she dealt with affliction. She was in constant pain. But there was something, she knew something about Jesus that in her affliction, she was not overwhelmed. I think about the early days of this church before 
at this property in 1963 and 64. And every Saturday night, the church together, and we met in a in a dance hall, just 1960s code for a bar. And they'd go in on sat on Sunday morning, and they'd sweep out all the beer bottles from Sunday from Saturday night, and they'd have church. And it'd be easy to think, what are we doing? These are 1960s Nazarenes, okay? <laughs> Not 2020 Nazarenes. Very different relationship with alcohol. <laughs> it'd be easy to think, what are we doing in this place? What are we doing so close to all this sinful behavior? But the confidence and the assurance was not that I need to stay away from the things that hurt me, but rather that I go to those places with the love of Christ, the presence of the Spirit, and the joy of the Lord. One more thing about Cody, faithfulness toward God. In our staff meeting, uh, it's not just in our staff meeting, but it's the place that I see it the most. I think I said this a week or two ago. But it's, it's the way that he gives thanks to people. And, and, and I don't know that he does it because he feels it every month. But he shapes me because the things that you start to notice and the things that you speak, that's what you measure in your head. And so if you speak thanksgiving, you start to see all the good that people are doing throughout the week. If you speak joy you start to see those moments of joy in God's presence, of his consolation and of his peace. If you say instead, well, they really botched that one, you start to notice all the ways that they botched it. Faithfulness toward God. Another way of saying that is the way Jesus says it, where your treasure is there your heart will be also. You notice Jesus does not say where your heart is, your treasure will follow. He puts it the other way around. You can change what you treasure. You can't always change your own heart. So fix your eyes on those things that matter most, and we will slowly but surely, by God's grace, see his sanctifying mercy flood our lives and push out any space that we have for the idols. We will slowly but surely see him begin to fill us with his love, with his kindness, with his hope. The Thessalonians are an example, a sign to us of what it looks like to be a people on mission, not by the strength of our arguments, but by the force of our life. So the question today as we go out from here, and into a potluck that hopefully celebrates and demonstrates some of those exact things I've talked about. My question is, where might you fix your treasure? Because of what is most precious and most valuable is central in your heart. What afflictions have you been avoiding that allow you to flourish in the joy of Christ? You are at camp. What, what rock is Christ asking you to drop to allow you to be all in? All in in gratitude, joy, 
holiness and faith toward God. Pray with me. Lord, I am so grateful for this church. I am so thankful for this place and the people who fill it. I'm so thankful for the story of this place, and I'm thankful, Lord, for the story that Cody and so many others have played in this place. May we continue to be. May we discover that our treasure is fixed on you and that our hearts follow that focus. Or that as we come to the table today, there would be an awareness that you are the most valuable thing in the world. You are the most precious thing in the world. That we would give nothing up. That we wouldn't give you up for anything. Lord God, I pray that we might fix our hearts and our minds on you today. As we come to this table, to know that joy, even in the midst of difficulty, to know that holiness, even in the midst of affliction. Help us to be ever more your people this week and in our lives, we pray. Amen.